Hey, welcome to Post Thursday. I'm not even going to say the names of the other days of the week anymore. You know, it's no, it's no new, it's, it's not hot information that I love Thursday. But it's gotten to the point where I'm not even going to say the names of the other days. It's the day after Thursday. And I got nothing against this particular day, the day after Thursday. But, you know, my devotion to Thursday is so strong that I'm not even going to say the other names. Not even going to say the other days. It's going to be Thursday plus one. Thursday plus two. Each day of the week. And maybe it should be minus. Maybe it should be Thursday minus one. Maybe it should be a sort of a reverse. I should refer to the days of the week in reverse order by subtracting a day from Thursday. It's like trying to read a Roman numeral clock. You got to think about it. You can't just look up and know exactly what it's trying to tell you. I don't even know what that I don't even know what that clock's trying to tell me. I got to think about what X and I mean when they're together. I got to think about what he means when he says Thursday minus 1, Thursday minus 5. But you know, it's funny how things go that route. You know, it starts out, it all started out where it was just like, oh, yeah, I kind of like Thursday. I kind of like Thursday. I always feel better on Thursdays. It's my favorite day of the week. And next thing you know, you're just completely trying to eliminate every other day of the week. You're trying to erase history. You know what? The names, you know, I don't know. It's funny, though, how it does seem like things go that way. It does seem that sometimes our preferences slowly or sometimes quickly give way to eliminate everything else. Eliminate. Eliminate the names of the other days of the week. Otherwise, you don't really care about Thursday. You don't really care about Thursdays if you're willing to use the names of the other days of the week. You don't really care about Thursday. And in fact, we find blasphemy in anything we can. Finding blasphemy in anything we can. Uh, The reason I wanted to do today's episode, though, is, you know, this show, I've talked a lot about Ted Kaczynski. I've thought a lot about Ted Kaczynski in my life since I was a kid, since the case burst open. You know, my interest in true crime goes back to then. Before I even knew what true crime was, you know, when I was a little kid, it wasn't like I thought... Yeah, I'm into true crime. It was just, oh, these dark things fascinate me. And I don't think of Ted Kaczynski as a serial killer. I mean, he's that mad bomber. I have very little interest in these mad bomber types. And I wouldn't consider Ted Kaczynski a serial killer, even though he killed multiple people in somewhat of a serial fashion. But I think most people would know what I'm talking about when I say he's not a serial killer. And I guess partially because he was a terrorist. I mean, he was he had an ideological, philosophical justification for what he was doing. So that kind of makes him not a serial killer. But the question I guess I wanted to start this episode out with is what could have made Ted Kaczynski a good wizard? What would have had to have happened to make Ted Kaczynski a noble, good wizard, a white wizard, rather than a black mage. What could have made him a sage? Not to get poetic about this. What could have made Ted Kaczynski a white wizard rather than a black mage? What could have made him a sage in this day and age? Ted Kaczynski slam poetry. We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Like uh, like Michael Corleone says to his father, when his father is like, "I I wish that I wish that you would have become a senator," and Michael's like, "We'll get there someday, Pop. We'll get there someday. We'll get to Ted Kaczynski slam poetry someday, and hopefully that someday is a Thursday." Back to the poetry. Hopefully that someday is a Thursday. Thursday-oriented poetry. Just total devotion to Thursday. But, yeah, that question, though, you know, it's not, it's not one that I'm going to be able to answer. 
I'm not posing that question in order to answer it. But you'd think Ted Kaczynski, you know, he got this plot of land. He devoted himself to a natural way of living. And he was focused on knowledge. And, you know, speaking of elimination, eliminating those... Hey, Batty, how about, how about you don't bark out that window right now? Um, but uh, he, he was trying to eliminate, you know, modernity from his life because he saw it as poisonous and unhealthy. And I think many of us feel that way about it, even, even though we don't necessarily remove ourselves to log cabins. You know, I think many of us, many of us, you know, some of what Ted Kaczynski said in his manifesto resonates with many otherwise well-adjusted people. And I felt that way when I first read his manifesto. I think my family got the internet when I was in seventh grade, and I looked up the manifesto around that time. It was available online. And my brain wasn't fully formed by any means, and it's still not. But I remember reading Ted Kaczynski's manifesto and thinking, huh, you know, he's making some great points. You know, not just the obvious environmentalism and industrial technological complex. Actually, it's the, it's the technological industrial complex. Doesn't matter. Placeholder words. But, you know, we all know what he's talking about, and he's making some very... You know, clearly, just clear points. And, you know, so you read it and you think, oh, yeah, he's making some great points about this modern world we live in. This technological wasteland in some ways, or certainly heading that way. But he also makes some incredible points about leftism. And you'd look at Ted Kaczynski and you'd think, oh, he's a leftist. And he was in Berkeley in the 60s. He is, is super, you know, scientifically oriented. He's close to nature. He's a naturalist. But his criticisms of leftism could have only come from somebody who was very familiar with leftism. And he goes, you know, in depth, and I, I feel that his criticisms of, of le- his criticisms of leftism are still strong today maybe more relevant today than ever. I think he saw the direction that leftism was heading in. But what's funny about that is you, you'll read that, you'll read that in his manifesto and think, oh, well, I guess Ted Kaczynski's a Republican. I guess he's a Republican. <laughs> of course he is, because he, he's sending bombs. Uh, but uh, no, he, when he talks about the right wing... He's so dismissive. I, you know, I'm, it's been a while since I've skimmed or even read, you know, since I've read or even skimmed the Unabomber Manifesto. But what I remember is he has this just this very detailed, lengthy criticism of leftism, and then when he gets to the right wing, to you know, U.S. conservatism, conservatism, uh, he is just outright dismissive. He's like, I don't even need to go into that. He's like, I don't even know. I don't even need to break down why conservatism is a bad idea that's my memory of it so it's funny that he you know he's talking all about it's you know he's talking all about the problems of leftism and if you're a if you're a leftist you'll read that and be like he's talking about me and that means he's a republican and it's like he, then he gets to the right wing and he just he won't even talk about it he's so dismissive of it and of course on paper you know you look at Ted Kaczynski and it's like yeah uh He's a Green Party activist. Sure seems like a Green Party activist. He sure seems like a a leftist. But no, you know, he didn't identify. He was independent. And I guess I never felt admiration for Ted Kaczynski, especially because of what he did, especially because of why we know him. When you think about his actions, you know, and how silly his actions were. The people that he bombed. You know, I believe one of the people he bombed just owned a computer store. It's like, might as well, oh, I sent a bomb to the manager of Comp USA. I, I sure made my point. But no, you know, and, you know, the way I've referred to Ted Kaczynski on here before is he's the guy with a flip phone who's letting everybody know, I don't, I don't even have a smartphone. I don't even have a smartphone. I, I still have a flip phone. Ted Kaczynski's that guy, or he's even the guy who's like, I still have a landline. I don't even have a cell phone. 
I don't even have a cell phone. I got a landline. I don't even have cable TV. That's what Ted Kaczynski is to me. He couldn't just enjoy having a flip phone because he enjoyed the mechanics of a flip phone. Because, you know, as somebody who had a flip phone longer than most people, I, on one hand, you know, I was digging my heels into the ground, kind of protesting the whole smartphone thing. There was a part of me that was doing that. Part of it was laziness, not wanting to make this big transition to this new device. But there was a part of me that did genuinely enjoy the mechanics of a flip phone. You know, I didn't necessarily want this full-color, high-definition computer screen in my pocket. I kind of liked the the glowing, antiquated interface. You know, I, I liked the mechanics of feeling the buttons when you type in a phone number, you, you text. That sort of esoteric way of texting where you have to hit each button multiple times to get the right letter because each number on the dial pad corresponds to several letters that can only be used by hitting it a certain number of times. You know, I sort of liked that. Even though it was inconvenient, I liked the feel of it. I also liked the idea of flipping it open. I liked the feel of that and the idea of it as well because it's almost like I have to open this to access it. It's not just there. It's not just a screen staring at me all the time. I have to flip it open. I have to open it. There's a level of deliberation to it. But no, Ted Kaczynski is the guy who didn't just enjoy his flip phone because he enjoyed flip phones. It was all about, it was this act of protest. You know, he couldn't just go live in his cabin because he enjoyed cabins and nature. He couldn't just embrace this close relationship to the earth. He had to live with this, he was obsessed with the urban developed technological industrial world. He was probably more obsessed with it than anybody else you know. Ted Kaczynski was was more consumed with technology than, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, because it led to him... I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, whatever the fuck his name is, he can walk away anytime he wants. You know, even though he probably won't, he can walk away from it. And that's the funny thing you see about these tech czars. These tech czars is that they actually try to get away from it. Those are the people that you'll you'll hear they go on these they unplug and go on these expeditions out into nature. They love hiking. They love to microdose and go hiking, hiking. And uh, Ted Kaczynski though was living that way all the time, you know. He you know, hiking for him was just, you know, walking to go get water to go get water out of his well. You know, hiking was a, a day, you know, a daily part of Ted Kaczynski's routine, but yet he couldn't stop obsessing with the world that he rejected. He couldn't stop obsessing over the world that he rejected. And in doing that, he became a bad wizard. He became a dark mage. He became Soromon. You know, in Lord of the Rings, Soromon was originally good, and of course, he becomes bad. He becomes the evil wizard, which is an archetype. The good wizard is an archetype, but as, as is the evil wizard. And in Ted Kaczynski's case, he was also the mad scientist. And the mad scientist and the evil wizard are the same thing. And even though I make these distinctions on here between mysticism and science, magic and science, a pure interest in science is magic. It's just that the the way that that gets socially distorted turns science into something else. Don't quote me on that. But that's that's the way I feel. I feel that ma- uh, science in its essence is a form of magic in its pure essence, not the way it gets politicized not the way that we think about the role of scientists in our world today. But in its essence, I consider them two different versions of the same thing, basically. 
And, you know, in Ted Kaczynski's case, he was both the mad scientist and the evil wizard. But I guess I wonder what role mysticism played in Ted Kaczynski's life, because all of the foundations were there. Ted Kaczynski's life had all of the foundations of a profoundly mystic life. And he could have been that eccentric sage who might not might be a little awkward, might be a little strange, but who nonetheless was able to find harmony in this life and in his relationship to nature. And I guess an easy answer to the question of, you know, why couldn't Ted Kaczynski just be a good wizard? Why couldn't Ted Kaczynski just be a good wizard and not a bad wizard? And the, the, the obvious answer that someone would have is, oh, mental illness. Something that Ted Kaczynski vehemently denied. And that was something that interested me as a kid, is that he did not want his mission statement to be lost, and he didn't want his intellect to be undermined by an insanity plea. Because an insanity plea, whether it's real or not, whether it's made up, whether it's just an attorney's trick or not, a... Insanity plea, you know, it's a way of getting out from under, you know, the, it's, it's a way of avoiding judgment. Not that you won't face judgment, not that you won't be sentenced to life in prison, but it's, it's a way of evading, you know, the, the, the expected judgment that is given to someone who does something wrong. But Ted Kaczynski, it was fascinating to me as a kid, because I, as a kid, I mean, you know the, it's almost a trope or a cliche, the idea of the insanity plea, where it's like, oh, this guy killed someone. I bet he's going to claim he's crazy, or I bet he's going to claim he's crazy, because, you know, that's what people do. I bet he's, he's going to claim he's crazy, and then he's going to go to prison, and he's going to find God. There's this sort of paint-by-numbers, sort of, it's sort of a paint-by-numbers scenario, you know, where it's just like, yeah, he's going to try to get out from under this by claiming he wasn't all there. Then he's going to find God in prison and he's going to, you know, do this and that. You know, we tend to see it as this, you know, form of manipulation. But I like that Ted Kaczynski was adamant, you know, regardless of his motivations, I just like that he was adamant that he wasn't crazy. And you could say that he was. I mean, a lot of crazy people claim they're not crazy. And in Ted Kaczynski's case, I mean, you could say that somebody who lives deep in the woods and has this natural ideal, who's living out this natural ideal like one of our ancestors, the fact that he can't stop obsessing over the technological industrial world to the point where he has to put on a hoodie and sunglasses and ride his bike to the post office to mail a bomb to a computer store owner. Yeah, that doesn't sound sane. But at the same time, you know, when you actually look at his statements, he's not a raving madman. He might be a mad scientist. He might be an evil wizard. But they're not the the statements of somebody who's not there. They're actually, there's actually a great deal of clarity in some of what he said, including since his arrest. I had read a, a book about Timothy McVeigh many years ago, and at the end of the book, they included a letter from Ted Kaczynski, who had a small amount of interaction with Timothy McVeigh in Supermax prison. And he it was interesting to read, because he basically gave a review. It was like a, a peer review of, Te- of Timothy McVeigh. They both got T names, what does it say about T names that, what does it say about T names that they all got to bomb people? Uh, but it was just interesting to read Ted Kaczynski's basically a, an analysis of Timothy McVeigh, and he didn't like him, nor did he approve of McVeigh's motivations. So it's funny, these almost like niche peer groups that exist out there. It's like there are, there is a niche peer group of bombers who have opinions on each other's execution and motivation in bombing people. 
But you'll find that anywhere. I mean, you'll find the smallest niches. I mean, I was just reading another Michael Moorcock book, and at the end, it included something he wrote about editing sci-fi magazines in the 1960s. And that's a whole world. You know, of course, sci-fi authors, especially obscure ones who are writing short stories for sci-fi, for struggling sci-fi magazines, of course, they're going to have very specific taste and opinions. But it's still always interesting to me when you get a glimpse into some very obscure peer group. And you realize, oh, yeah, everybody has some micro peer group that you would never expect. And they have, you know, they're able to look in, they're, they're able to have, uh, I don't know, I mean, they analyze each other, they have opinions, because that's their world. And it was just funny to read uh, Ted Kaczynski's analysis of Timothy McVeigh. But the point is that it showed a great deal of clarity. Just his ability to give his his read on Timothy McVeigh, it was, I mean, it was almost academic. It was sound, <laughs> you know? So I, I believe that he wasn't mentally ill, at least in the sense that we think of it. Like, he wasn't a delusional schizophrenic. The reasons why he was sending out those bombs and you know, whatever his motivations were, they weren't delusions, I guess is how I would put it. And so you could answer that question and say, oh, you know, why, why, why couldn't Teddy Kaczynski be a good wizard? And you could say, you know, mental illness, but that's just such an easy catch-all in our world today. And we're going to look back at our understanding of mental illness the same way we look back on you know, witch hunting and demonic possession. Not to say that diagnosing someone as mentally ill is, is the same as witch hunting. You know, I'm not, I don't think it's, it's done. We're not trying to necessarily condemn people. We're often trying to help them. But I just, my point is, is I think we're going to look back at it as some sort of antiquated, you know, just in the same way we're going to look back on a lot of things, in the same way that history does reflect on on some of the routines that we went through in the past and just says, I can't believe we did it that way. And I do think we're going to do that about mental illness because there will continue to be new diagnoses. You know, the DSM continues to get updated. And of course, that's heavily politicized too. You know, and, and I guess that's one of the flaws with mental illness is that it becomes politicized. Oh, if, you don't, if you don't believe what I believe, uh, you got something wrong with you and you need therapy. If you're not up to date on the current socio-political understanding of this issue, according to me and my friends, you might be crazy. You might have something wrong with you. And we can see where people have used mental illness to condemn people many times over. It's gaslighting. You know, I did that episode a few days ago about how everybody gaslights everybody. And they always have and they always will. So get used to it. But, you know, people gaslight each other. And, you know, I'm not going to gaslight Ted Kaczynski here. And that's something I never thought I would say. I'm not going to gaslight Ted Kaczynski by saying that the reason he couldn't be a wise forest sage is because he was too crazy. And, you know, just to go on a little tangent here while I'm talking about it, I'm getting to a point where I'm getting to a point where I don't even know how much I believe in mental illness. I, of course, know that the description of someone's behavior is real. The symptoms are real. Let me put it that way. I believe that the symptoms of mental illness are completely real because we experience them. We see them. We know some people are delusional. We know some people are prone to manic states, depressive states, excessive anxiety. That stuff happens, but we're very attached to the terminology. We're very attached to the diagnosis. We are very attached to the treatment. And it does evolve. It does change. But we're living in a time where we are religious about those things. In the same way that we are religious about science, 
this thing that many people think isn't religious at all. Oh, science, it's the antidote. Science is the antidote to religion. And it's like, well, it's become a new religion. You know, the people have become religious about science. It's not that science is inherently religious. It's that people have become religious about it, and they won't budge, and they worship at the altar of it. People have busts of scientists in their home. Paintings of Einstein, photos of Einstein on the walls of your school. You know, it's like you, it has its icons, and, and many of them are deserved. These are people who did impressive things. These are magicians in their own right, to go back to that. But we are very attached to this idea of mental illness as we currently understand it. And I would say we are religious about it. In the same way that we were religious about demonic possession and the idea of being afflicted with some sort of evil spirit, because that was what we understood at the time. And when I talk about mental illness, you know, I, which I do talk about, and I'm willing to use the language and words of that, you know, I'm willing to I'm willing to use the 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 current language and and ideas that psychology is. I don't know. I'm losing my words here. I'm, I'm willing to use the words as I lose my words. But you know, I, you know, I there, I have a certain trust in psychology, and I'm interested in psychology. But it's just one way of deciphering something that is infinitely complex that I don't think we will ever truly understand. And in the same way that spirituality is that too, or spiritual practice, not necessarily the spirit itself, but the spiritual practice, the way that we try to interpret the spiritual components of our existence, you know, they're very similar to me to it's it's very similar to psychology you know where it's how we interpret it but it's not necessarily the thing it's actually not the thing and so i don't want to get too attached to the idea of just being like oh mental illness is the answer and and you know speaking of us being religious about mental illness you can see where it's almost a a social necessity now like initially there was this idea of we have to fight stigma and we have to be willing to admit our afflictions. Catherine Zeta-Jones came out as bipolar a decade ago or something like that, and it was a big deal. It was like, wow, that's very brave. Although there are some mental illnesses where it's like, you don't got to make an announcement. Paranoid schizophrenic, you probably aren't going to have to make a press release to let people know. It's like, hey guys, I I have an announcement to make... uh I suffer from paranoid delusions. We know and we've always known. It's like telling people you're gay. It's like, we know, we've always known, and we love you. But yeah, if someone has a serious enough mental affliction, chances are everybody's going to be like, we know. But yeah, there are some that, you know, and there's value to destigmatization. I'm not into re-stigmatizing mental illness by any means. I just, I'm not comfortable with our attachment to it, I guess. And I do think that our understanding will evolve and uh, we shouldn't be attached to that either. If our understanding evolves, we shouldn't be attached to that. We can just do our best to try to understand what is going on, even though we never will, and find ways of helping, finding ways of getting through it, but we've gotten to this mode now where, I mean, I think Twitter is a great example, where if you look through Twitter, you'll see all these accounts, journalists, well-known people, and in their bio, in their Twitter bio, it'll say, like, their pronouns, and then it'll say their mental illnesses. And if that's the subject matter they deal with, I understand, but it's, it's become almost this introductory... It's it's almost become like a, a part of your introduction now, like your real day-to-day life intera- introduction, where it used to be you'd, you'd meet somebody for the first time and say, hey, what do you do? Hey, hey, my name's Daniel. I'm a carpenter. What's your name and what do you do? You know, and, and you'd say, oh, oh I'm a, 
I'm an engineer. I'm an engineer. My name is Michael, and I'm an engineer. Now it's, my name's Michael, and I have bipolar disorder. You know, now it's almost like our introductions to people are that. And I know I'm exaggerating, but I'm, I think in certain circles it is this way. And people I know in real life, I know I, I just used Twitter as an example, but people I know in real life have these social identities that are based partly around mental affliction. And when part of your social identity is based around that, you don't really have the incentive to move past it, which is why we need exorcisms again, which is why we need to exorcise demons again. (laughs) You know, but people do, they become attached, and you think about attachment, all of the things that we become attached to, especially related to our ego and our identity, And, uh, you know, when mental illness becomes a form of social currency, that's very dangerous. It's one thing to be open about your issues. It's one thing to want to destigmatize mental illness. It's another to become so attached to the idea of your mental illness that you can't move past it and you actually reinforce it. And maybe even invent it. Because that goes on too. I think that's part of this whole thing that I'm talking about is there are people who are inventing afflictions. They are inventing illness. I mean, people do it with physical illness. They'll pretend to be sick for attention. So of course they're going to do it with mental illness. In fact, it's even easier with mental illness. It's even easier because nobody can see it. And you can perform if you want. You can perform it out. Just something to consider, you know, just something to consider in this world today when you find yourself just attached to to these current placeholder words and ideas. Because it's not just the words themselves that are placeholders. Sometimes ideas are placeholders. As we try to combat the great mysteries of life, we have to hold on to certain ideas for a temporary amount of time because that's the closest we can come. That's the, the closest estimation we have to what it is we're trying to understand or describe or communicate. So long story short, you know, I don't know that it's, a, it's easy enough. I don't know that it's a simple enough answer to say, oh, Ted Kaczynski, he was crazy because he says he wasn't. And even though his behavior was certainly mad, you know, maddening, and it was, I mean, a, a textbook example of what I would call good old-fashioned madness, I don't think we can look at him and necessarily just say that what turned him into an evil wizard and a mad scientist was something as simple as mental illness. And it reminds me of a Sopranos quote where... Uncle Junior develops dementia, and he he starts repeating the same criticisms of his nephew, Tony. I believe it's, you never had the makings of a varsity athlete. Uncle Junior keeps saying that. You never had the makings of a varsity athlete. And he says that to him multiple times, and there's a scene, and I thought this was a very poignant scene, where Tony gets, Tony's like, I understand that you have dementia, but why can't you say nice things? You know, why can't you repeat nice things? And that can happen with dementia, where someone becomes really mean and crotchety. And some of that old, that mean old man archetype, I think sometimes that can be a symptom of dementia. It's like, it's, it's the same thing that happens to people with CTE, where you don't hear about people with CTE and brain damage from professional wrestling or football or boxing. You don't often hear about it as a good thing. Like, oh, he has brain damage. Part of his brain isn't functioning like normal, but he's, he's giving away all of his money. He's doing things that are counterintuitive to his own survival, like he's giving away all of his money and food and he's 
giving out compliments left and right. You don't hear about that. You hear about Chris Benoit killing his entire family in some sort of weird CTE-induced psychosis. You hear about that football player killing his girlfriend and then himself. You hear about Junior Seau killing himself. You know, you hear about stuff like that when it comes to CTE. And with dementia, you'll often hear those stories about a parent or a grandparent just kind of snapping at everyone and repeating nasty remarks. And that's what The Sopranos was showing. It's like Uncle Junior, who was already an asshole pre-dementia, he's just making the same criticism of Tony over and over again. And Tony asks, you know, why can't you, why can't it be something nice? That's what I don't understand. And this, it gets personal for me because my mom, I saw her developing dementia. She was, you know, 71 years old when she died last December. But the last few years I had started to notice you know, she was a very outgoing person, so she talked a lot, but I was starting to notice what I felt were the early signs of dementia, and her grandma had had it, some older relatives of hers had had it, and I believe she would have developed dementia in the, in the I don't know how soon, I don't know what the, what the time frame is for developing dementia, but I was noticing a lot more repetition and her not realizing that she was repeating herself, and it caused me to get very frustrated. Even though I knew what was potentially happening, part of that frustration is not denial, but the sort of like, I don't want this to be dementia, so I'm gonna, I'd rather be annoyed that someone's repeating themselves than think of this as dementia. But it's just, it's a very common experience with children of, of, you know, senior citizen parents where even if you know it's dementia, you still get mad because it's just, it's frustrating. It's stressful. And so it, it didn't get severe. My mom passed away before, I mean, she was still all there mentally, but with the level of repetition that was increasing and stuff, it was, I, I, I'm almost certain she was developing dementia. But what's amazing about that is the things that she repeated, they were nice things. She was a very kind, sweet soul. And so what's funny is that the things that she was repeating often were generally pleasant and nice. And uh, so Tony Soprano's question, it's, you know, it's too bad he didn't know my mom. It's too bad he had Uncle Junior in his life and not Pam Stonefelt because... Pam Stonefell, if she if it was dementia that she was developing, you know, we'll never know. And that's a nice mystery. We'll we'll never know if she would have actually developed dementia. That's a question that doesn't need to be answered. But you know, it seemed like she was, you know, if if she did have some form of early onset dementia or something like that, she was repeating nice things. And that can be annoying too, to be totally honest. It's like somebody I have a I struggle a lot with repetition. When something is repeated to me often, even though I repeat myself constantly, even though I am the the number one culprit of this, and if you listen to this show, you know that. Uh, but still, it's like I, I do have problems with people repeating themselves, and it, it probably is me projecting my own criticism onto other people. That probably is a great case of projection, where like I fear repeating myself, and I know that I do it, Therefore, I don't like it in other people, too. But, you know, with my mom, she was repeating nice things. So I think it's possible. I think it's possible for someone to have dementia, positive dementia, like kind dementia. I think that's possible if a person's soul is pure enough. You know, Uncle Junior on The Sopranos, he was a, a nasty old mafia boss who killed people. And when, like I said, pre-dementia. He was a nasty guy. So it's unsurprising that his dementia would produce nastiness. But I have heard of people who are nice people developing kind of a kind of snapping. And, you know, I have heard of sort of a hostile dementia, even among elderly people who were very nice and are very nice souls, you know. But I guess the little glimpse I think that I had of it with my mom was at least positive, at least kind hearted. So it is possible. 
you know? And I mean, I think that people with all kinds of mental afflictions, I, I think that they can be nice. I think we, we don't often see that, but it does exist. And it can be hard to trust it when we do see it. I think that's the other thing, too, is when somebody, it's like somebody in a manic state, where if you know somebody who's manic depressive or bipolar, when they're in a manic state, they can shower you with attention and praise and compliments. They just, if nothing else, just a, a, a blitz of energy. And they want to involve you. They have all these ideas. But you don't trust it, and it makes you really uncomfortable, even though it's positive. Even though somebody, a bipolar person who's in a manic state, even though it's it's often positive, you know, especially if you know their patterns, it makes you uncomfortable because you know it's not stable, you know it's not sustainable, and you know that on the other side of that, you know that the other shoe that, that can and will drop can be very dark and nasty. And even when they're in that manic state, if you don't go along with their big plan, they can snap at you in a in just a second. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's an interesting thing that I think about sometimes, whether, you know, your mental afflictions, which by their very definition are pain and suffering. That's what an affliction is. It's something that causes pain and suffering. But whether, you know, so-called mental illness, I mean, let's just go, let's get really uh, archaic about it. Let's say, can demonic possession be positive? <laughs> you know, can someone who's possessed by a demon be a source of good? I don't know. Was Ted Kaczynski possessed by a demon? That might be an easier way to think of him. That might be an easier way to think of him as the evil wizard, as Soromon. I mean, we know he was self-righteous. We know that self-righteousness played a large role, that he, the ends justified the means, even though the ends were pathetic, even though the targets that he chose were pathetic. Not them, not, not that the victims were pathetic, but the choices the people that he chose weren't people that are going to like, oh, I'm going to bomb this computer salesman, and you know what? And we're going to go back to the Stone Age. I'm going to kill this one computer salesman, and everybody's going to start using flip phones again. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing where it's like, it might be easier to explain that as almost a form of demonic possession, except for the fact that it was... You know, Ted Kaczynski was an intellectual. He is an intellectual. I believe he's still alive. But he is an archetype, you know, and I want to go back to that where I have a tendency to think of Ted Kaczynski as older than he was. You know, he had a beard. He had gray hair. He was an older man. But I have a tendency to imagine him even older than he was. And I have a tendency to visualize him as more of a medieval sage than he actually was. But it's funny how when people look that part, they often play that part. There's a guy I love, John Butler, and he's uh, he talks about spirituality, meditation. He hangs out in churches, talks a lot about God. You know, I'd consider him, I don't know that he would consider himself this, but he's, I would consider him Gnostic. And uh, it just has... He, a very simple but profound view of what this whole phenomenon is. And he looks the part. He's an ancient Brit. He's a British man with a long white beard, with his britches pulled up past his belly button. He lays in cow pastures, just staring at the sky. He sounds exactly like you'd want a, you know, an old white-bearded sage to sound. He has a quiet voice, a British accent. And I can't help but feel like he knows that. I can't help but feel like he knows that he is the archetypal as well as stereotypical old sage or wizard. And he's a force for good. You know, he has YouTube videos and he is a force for good. To me, he's almost what a Ted Kaczynski could have been. 
Because every archetype, you know, Carl Jung, when he talked about archetypes, he talked about how they have a positive and a negative manifestation. They're like coins with two sides of the same coin. And that's a good way of thinking about archetypes because it does seem like the root of them is often the same, but they could end up on one side or the other. And, uh, you know, there's there's John Butler who, yeah, he's close to nature. He Even though he does these YouTube videos that somebody else produces for him, he doesn't know anything about technology. He just... He has a great deal of wisdom to offer, and I think he understands that standing in front of a camera is helpful. And he's not an egotistical person, whereas you look at Ted Kaczynski, and it's all ego. It is all ego, because he wouldn't have done the things he did if he hadn't been completely consumed by ego. And his writings are egotistical, even though there's a lot of insight into him. Because it's not like ego means that you suddenly... ego Being egotistical doesn't mean that everything you say is nonsense and nobody should listen. You know, there's a lot of egotistical people, you know, who have a lot to offer. And, you know, Ted Kaczynski's writings have a lot to offer, even though his actions don't. And maybe that goes back to that idea that I've tried to harp on of the idea where you can disagree with somebody but still maybe take something from them. But you don't have to take the whole of them. You don't have to look at Ted Kaczynski and say, oh, well, I guess I agree with a couple points in his manifesta. I agree with a couple of points in Ted Kaczynski's manifesta. Therefore, I have to agree with everything he ever did and consider him a hero. No, you don't. You can look at Ted Kaczynski and say, hey, I might agree with some of the points he made. That doesn't mean I support his actions, and it doesn't mean I consider him a hero. And that's how I feel about it. But you can see where he's, you know, he did become this Saruman, a lonely Saruman. At least Saruman had, you know, orcs and Uruk High to keep him company. Ted Kaczynski didn't even have that. And I like the, you know, one thing I like, not to get into some uh, Lord of the Rings analysis, which everybody wants to hear 47 minutes into an episode, but, you know, one thing I love about Lord of the Rings is that there are two, the two main bad guys, Sauron and Sauron, they have very similar names, which is confusing. And they're both, you know big bad guys in towers. But, you know, with Sauron, he's, of course, abstracted. He's an eye. He's basically pure evil. He's the idea of evil. Whereas Sauron is, an, is a man afflicted with evil. You know, Sauron, I guess, used to be... I mean, Sauron was a demigod who has become this eye at the top of a tower, basically pure energy, which is kind of how we think of evil this invisible energy that sees all, and if you stare at it, it will afflict you. And that's what that's how Sauron works. And Sauron, though, is a man or, or a wizard. I don't know if you consider wizards men. He's a whiz. He's a mad whiz. Sauron the mad whiz. But he's a, you know, a man. He's a humanoid. And he's afflicted with this evil. And that's how I look at Ted Kaczynski. You know, he was a man, and uh, he was a wizard. He was a scientist. He was somebody who had something to offer, and maybe he still did offer something to us. And that's a difficult one, because in saying that Ted Kaczynski did offer us something that we can learn from, it almost sounds like I'm giving credit to his worst possible qualities, which I'm not. And we have to learn how to do that. We have to learn how to learn from people, to learn from the insight they offer, even just the whole story of how not to become an evil wizard. If nothing else, I think that's what you can take from the Ted Kaczynski story. You know... You shouldn't be afraid to go out into the middle of nowhere and be a hermit. 
but maybe have some kind of discipline or practice. Maybe do some work to begin with. Because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. I think it was, it's one of those philosophers said that. Wherever you go, there you are. And it's a good point, because it's like, Ted Kaczynski tried to run away from the things that he hated about society. He tried to run away from this, you know, this world of, you know, he was he was surrounded by the self-righteousness of 1960s Berkeley. He didn't get along with his peers. And I think what's fascinating with him is he wasn't a damaged hippie. If you didn't know his story, you'd think, oh, he was a hippie who took too much LSD. And yeah, there's, I don't know if it's ever been proven, but people think that he was an MK Ultra subject. And that fucked him up somehow. But I think there was more to it than that. Even if that's true, I think there's more to the story than that. But with Ted Kaczynski, you'd think, you'd almost think that he was a damaged hippie, almost like a, a different form of Charles Manson, you know, who was not really a damaged hippie, but a mystic a dangerous mystic, sort of an evil wizard too in some ways, who took advantage of the hippie movement. But you'd almost put Ted Kaczynski in that category, but he really wasn't. He never was a hippie that I know of. And I think a lot of his attitudes were a rejection of hippies while still having some of the same values, which is a close relationship to nature. But there's perversity to him too. And this was something I read as a kid that blew my mind as well, and that's that I guess they found a journal in his cabin, and of course he had a journal. Of course he had a journal. But in, in his journal, he, he would talk about littering in the forest. And if I remember right, he got a thrill out of it. So there's still this need to rebel, even against a system that you see as pure, which is living in a wood cabin in nature, living off the land, being devoted to this earthly lifestyle, even then, Ted Kaczynski felt this urge, this perverse urge to litter in the woods. And I should probably look that up again, but I I did read that at one point, that they found that in his journal, that he got some kind of sick thrill out of occasionally littering in the woods. And does that undermine, you know, everything? Does that undermine his entire philosophy? No. It just shows that in the same way that he got a perverse thrill over bombing people and he couldn't stop obsessing over the world that he ran away from, he also couldn't stop the urge to rebel against his own beliefs and do the very thing that he was fighting against which on the most basic level would be littering, throwing garbage, human garbage in the woods. I wonder what kind of garbage it was. I like to imagine like a Lay's potato chip bag, but I don't know what it was. I don't know if he documented that. I don't know if he described the litter that he left in the woods. But to get back to the wherever you go, there you are thing, it's like Ted Kaczynski didn't work out his kinks before he left society. You know, he fled with hate in his heart, and that is what creates an evil wizard. And some people, though, you know, I think there are others, there are other wizards and sages who manage to act out or live out the positive side of that wizard archetype, that sage archetype, who leave society with some sort of misgiving or discomfort or even hatred and they manage to work it out. So it's not like if you run away from something in society and go to nature that you're definitely going to turn into an evil wizard. I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, we are complicated people and different we have different backgrounds, different things and maybe it is as simple as, you know, some sort of mental disorder. I don't know, but you know, in Ted Kaczynski's case like I said, I don't know that he had a mystical relationship to just life. I don't know that he cared about that. I, would ha- I should look that up. I should see what Ted Kaczynski's thoughts on mysticism were or what his spiritual relationship to this whole phenomenon was. But I can look at the, the sages that I 
that I, I see as truly wise and well balanced. People like John Butler and countless others. I just I go with John Butler because I like his videos, and I see where they do ha- they are mystics. They do have a deeply personal but also impersonal spiritual relationship with this whole thing. And I can't imagine a guy like that ever mailing bombs out. And so, you know, mysticism, you know, as much as people want to dismiss it, it does lube you up in a way that, it, it you know, it does lube you, your soul up. And in doing so, minimize the amount of friction you have with your surroundings. And I guess, you know, that's the last thing I'll say. I don't have any more insight into Ted Kaczynski. I don't have any more answers to the question of him. But I can see where wherever you go, there you are. And he took something dark with him and obsessed over it. And uh, he, we know who he is because of that. We only know who he is because he is a dark wizard. And we probably would have never heard of Ted Kaczynski if he hadn't done what he did. But maybe he would, maybe if he had figured it all out, if Ted Kaczynski had lubricated his soul with harmony, maybe we would be watching YouTube videos of him today. Maybe he would say, you know what, I don't love this technological world, but maybe I should just get a smartphone and offer some of my insight, some of what I've learned from living out here in the Montana wilderness. Maybe Ted Kaczynski would have realized that it's not the device, it's what you do with the device. It's also what you do with yourself. You know, maybe we would know who he was or is if he had been able to do that. But the only reason we know who he is is because he did turn into an evil wizard. And that's okay, too, because he's an example. He's a cautionary tale. That's what isolation can do to you if you don't have some sort of practice, if you can't find some sort of balance, if you're not seeking to harmonize, despite all of the dissonance around us. You know, you don't achieve harmony by trying to, de- to destroy the dissonance. You have to harmonize despite that dissonance. Maybe not even despite it. You just know that there is dissonance all around. But you continue on that path toward harmony, you know? But speaking of mysticism, I'm going to, you know, I would love to just end it there. It would have been a great moment for the music to kick in and a nice dramatic end. But I've been playing Final Fantasy IX the last couple nights. I downloaded it. And I want to bring this up because it's an example of my it's an example to me of the sort of mundane mysticism. And it I downloaded Final Fantasy IX, it's for the computer, and it's 20 years old, and I haven't played it for 20 years either. I played it once when it came out, and I don't remember much, if any, of it. And I'm just at a point right now where I just I need a distraction. I don't play video games regularly, but I need that sort of immersion and distraction right now. I think you can use that to your benefit. And not that I have to justify it that way by being like, oh, it's a... A video game is a way to, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a process, you know. It's, I'm just playing a fucking video game. But some of the backgrounds are very rough. They're beautiful, but they're very pixelated and rough. And Squaresoft didn't do much to clean them up for this computer re-release. re-release. And uh, so, you know, being the world of magicians you know, living in this world of magicians, big and small, some fans created a, what they call a mod, which makes the background just utterly beautiful, stunningly beautiful. And uh, so when I downloaded, I downloaded the game, I also downloaded the mod, and I was just spending, the first, the first night that I played the game a couple nights ago, I was just in awe of these backgrounds. I was like, this is just beautiful. I'm so happy to be running around these beautifully rendered jungles 
and temples and towns and castles and riding in airships. It's just stunning. And even after I, you know, got ready for bed that night, I just kept thinking about those backgrounds and those visuals. And then I woke up the next morning and the game does these automatic updates. Except that this game in particular, it hadn't received an update for some long amount of time. But it just happened to update the night that I downloaded downloaded it. And this update made it so that this fan mod doesn't work. So it's back to these kind of, you know, compared to this mod, the backgrounds are not very pretty. I mean, they are. They're pretty, but they're, you know, it's like comparing great hamburgers. It's like comparing the best hamburger to a great hamburger, maybe. And uh, I was upset, not like, not angry, but I was just, I was disappointed. I was like, oh no, just, I had gotten used to these beautifully rendered, modded backgrounds. And sure enough, like just when I got attached to that, to playing the game that way, the company does a rare update that reverts it all and the mod no longer works until the modders, I guess, fix it. And I thought, should I wait? Should I wait until the modders fix it again? Whenever that'll be, I don't know. And I was like, no, I just have to, I have to play the game. I just have to play the game and enjoy the, the backgrounds the way they're meant to be, which are still beautiful in their own way. And I have to enjoy the game because, you know, I, it's, it's about playing the game right now and just getting into this video game. And it's funny, though, because to me, that's a mystical experience. It's the fact that the company decided to update the game the night that I started playing it, the night that I started getting just attached and immersed into these beautiful, rendered, modded backgrounds, and the fact that the company released an update that made it so I couldn't see those backgrounds anymore. That, to me, that to me is sort of the, the, a great example of the mundane, mystical experience. Where, no, I'm not going to get delusional about it and be like, that company, the company, they forced that auto-update because they knew that I had downloaded the game and was enjoying the fan-modded backgrounds. They, they, they knew that I was doing that. You know, it, it'd be very easy to get kind of conspiratorial. You know, there's, there's conspiratorial mysticism where you think the world is conspiring against you in even small ways like that. But that said, it, it does sort of give me this weird feeling where it's like, I already have this reservation about playing video games. And it seemed a little too perfect that there's this fan mod that makes the game even more beautiful in a way that I like. Because I don't even like super... I don't like modern graphics. So the idea that this thing gave the graphics a modern twist and it still greatly appealed to me, it seemed a little too perfect. And when, when things seem a little too perfect, the company will send out an auto-update for the first time in months that reduces the perfection at the very least. And uh, so to me, it's like... When you talk to someone about mysticism, it's like, yeah, there are some big mystical experiences that you can have, and they're a lot of fun, and they're profound, and they sometimes feel like they're lifting you off your feet. And then there are others where it's just like, oh, you can't enjoy the video game as much, but you have to try anyway. <laughs> that, to me, is another form of mysticism. It's that form of mundane mysticism. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's fine. Because that's what I had to accept. I was like, I, I still want to play the game. I still want to play the game. I'm not going to mail a bomb to the company that makes the game because their update broke my mod. I'm not going to turn into an evil wizard about it. Because you can do that. As the whole Ted Kaczynski example shows, you can become that evil wizard about it. You can become an evil lizard about it, too. Any kind of evil thing you want to be, the world gives you opportunities for that. Sometimes in the form of the mundane. Sometimes in the form of the mystic. Sometimes in the form of the mundane and the mystic. But it's a post-Thursday world we're living in. What do you expect from a post-Thursday world? 
you know, and I'm, I'm going to stay devoted to that. You're never going to hear, I'm going to use them right now for the sake of example. But you're not going to hear me use the words Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You're only going to hear me say Thursday, because every other day has a relationship to Thursday, and that's how I'm going to define those days. And it's going to be a slippery slope, because it's going to get to the point where I'm going to start mailing bombs to people who say Friday. I'm going to start mailing bombs to people who say Tuesday. Because that's how devoted I am to Thursday. And I can't show my proper devotion to Thursday without trying to destroy every other day of the week. Because that's mystical. (laughs) If you can succeed at destroying six days of the week, leaving only one, well, hey, you might just be an evil wizard. But guess what? When you destroy six days of the week, leaving only one, that one day starts to feel like seven days. So you can never really escape. (laughs) You can never really escape the system that you're trying to destroy. And maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the final point about all of this. You know, I can't escape the the way Squaresoft intends me to play Final Fantasy IX, even though there's this beautiful mod. I can't escape the auto-update. I can't escape that system that forces me to see the backgrounds the way Squaresoft intended them. Ted Kaczynski tried to destroy the industrial technological system. I guess I don't know if he tried to destroy it, but he tried to attack it. And we see where that brought him. He's now in one of the most high-tech places a human being can possibly be and will never be a part of nature again. He's in a place that has electronic you know, locking mechanisms, cameras, supermax. He's in a giant computer. So you can see where he couldn't escape that system. I can't escape that system by trying to make Thursday the only day of the week, because that'll just turn Thursday into a whole week unto itself. So, yeah, knowing that you can't truly escape that thing, and the more you try to escape it, the more you'll obsess over it, the more you'll potentially perpetuate that thing or become a part of it. You know accepting that that's part of the mystic process lubricate yourself because that's acceptance that's harmony don't try to escape but go where you want to go This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 